Welcome to Episode 52 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things, and is now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. Uh, uh, Jason, welcome. And uh, as a change of pace, um, I'm going to ask you to nominate what you think was the story of the week. You know, I thought the story of the week um, was the DEA license plate collection story, which I know we'll talk about a little bit later in the show. Yeah, let's let's get to that one in just a bit. And uh, I'm also joined by Michael Vadis uh, in our New York office, uh, formerly with the Justice Department and the FBI, uh, and now doing um, a variety of litigation and privacy work uh, out of our New York office. Uh, uh, Michael, welcome. You got a candidate for the story of the week? Well, I think mine is a is an easy one. It's it's got to be the interception of a really stupid pass. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's right. We we do specialize in interception. If you want to get a communication securely across the the goal line, you run it. You don't throw it up where someone's going to be able to intercept it. <laughs> it's true. I'm surprised that nobody has blamed uh, the. Uh, uh, that on NSA, you know, that they're intercepting everything uh, willy-nilly, and they intercepted that, too. <laughs> okay. Our guest today is Becky Richards. Uh, uh, Becky is the Director of Privacy and Civil Liberties at the National Security Agency, so we'll be asking her in just a second about her uh, uh, her agency's role in the debacle uh, in the last seconds of the Super Bowl. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's uh, uh, let's jump in. And uh, uh, let's start with the, the DEA. Uh, um, uh, it's you know everybody gets to spend some time in the barrel, and it's surely DEA's turn. You know it sure is. First of all, I apologize for my voice. It's a combination of a bug I caught from my daughter and my yelling at the TV about why they were throwing it on second and one. <laughs> um, you know the DEA, as we talked about last week, uh, uh, got some publicity of the unwanted kind when it was uh, revealed that they have a, a program that allowed them to access telephone toll records from AT&T switches, and now this week's revelations uh, involve a database of license plates collected from license plate readers and cameras installed at other uh, major highways. Um, you know, the information collected in the database was originally conceived for use in drug trafficking, money laundering cases, especially in the southwest border, but has also been used in violent crime cases, kidnappings, rapes, other, other uh, violent crimes. Um, you know, as with many of these things, there's a headline, and then when you, you have to read deep into the story um, uh, to really understand what's at, at play here. And, and, and I, I'm going to guess that you also knew about this program, too, when you were in there. I did. I did. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, and the information is, is, has been incredibly valuable, especially in the southwest border. That's where the, the database is maintained at a, a DEA, actually multi-agency, but run by DEA uh, center in El Paso, called the El Paso Intelligence Center. And, and it focuses on uh, intelligence to aid investigations of, of trafficking of guns and drugs and, and money across the southwest border. Um, and the information is tremendously helpful. But the important thing for purposes of the, the sort of privacy-related rhetoric that's attached itself to the story is that it's all information that's lawfully collected. Um, it's, it's all public information. It's all public information. You can't, you can't do more to display 
your license plate to the public, then attach it to the front of your car and drive around. But, you know, the Supreme Court has been inching up on saying, well, yeah, okay, it's public, but it's not continuous, and, and therefore, when it's continuous, it's different. I, I, I wonder if actually this disclosure and some of the other disclosures doesn't suggest that the Supreme Court uh, missed the bus on that. And uh, uh, law enforcement has been gathering this information for a long time. It's a little late to say, oh, well, we decided that it, it's public, but it's still protected. You know, I think it, that's an interesting um, observation. I think that, you know, that um, uh, the, the Jones case and this focus on sort of continuous observation, even of public movements, allowing you to develop a picture of someone's uh, uh, private life, has affected other types of law enforcement techniques, like poll cameras. I mean, I think that putting a poll camera up was the first thing I learned to do as a prosecutor other than printing out a grand jury subpoena. Uh, and even the use of poll cameras has come under question because it is focused and continuous and, right. and, and, you know, and, and it's directed at an individual or a residence. This is different. This is, you know, it, it, and I think that there might be a line under Jones that could get crossed if the data was being used to develop a continuous picture, a nearly continuous picture of the movements of a particular vehicle. But otherwise, it's a it's the lawful collection of publicly available information, information that people have no private interest in, um, and that, that is queried when needed to determine if if uh, they have uh, actually collected, uh, you know, evidence regarding the movements of a suspicious vehicle. So at a minimum, hey, it seems... You know what? I, yep. If, if I can just ask a question, you guys... Um, it was unclear to me from the articles whether they're collecting and storing information about every car that goes by or if they're just uh, putting out word to collect information on a certain license plate uh, and and then just tracing that car through, through uh, multiple cameras because they obviously present very different scenarios. I mean, I, I think you can do both. It's been a while. I, I've been at Epic and seen the... The program at work, um, uh, but and there's certain aspects of it I can't talk about. But I, I think, generally speaking, I think you could do both. Um, you could collect data on all the cars passing through a particular location, or you could, um, if you're focused on a specific vehicle, you could use that information to track the movements of that vehicle, much like you could oh, track it through a cell phone. I'll, I'll bet. I'll bet you twenty bucks. I'll bet you twenty bucks that they are gathering. All of it, because it might be useful, and until Jones, nobody thought there was any legal problem with it. Well, but now, if, you, if you're collecting all of it, then you're running into, uh, then it smacks of the 215 program, of collecting everybody's uh, telecommunications metadata. If you're just tracking certain cars for an extended period of time, then you run into the Jones issue. Uh, but, there, you know, it's, it seems to me far more... Uh, problematic if you're collecting every uh, license plate in, in the country. I bet. I'll just bet. You know, when you're talking about the border, you're talking about finding people who are sneaking stuff across the border, and that almost certainly means looking for patterns of behavior that are suspicious, like cars that are constantly down on the border but not registered to somebody who lives there and never crossing the border, uh, stuff like that, uh, and. Uh, Gathering this information would be really valuable for that. Well, it's, you know, it's it, would, it would be. I mean, I think there's, there's, there, there is a privacy interest here. The other allegation in some of the articles is that this program was at least initiated uh, for purposes of asset forfeiture because DEA and then the state and locals who were brought into the program love to seize vehicles even, you know, before there's been any determination about the owner's guilt because their, their coffers get enriched. 
Or maybe may, maybe they maybe they they took orders that some people would say, you know, what I'd really like is a 2014 Escalade. So let me know when one with a uh, license plate comes by that we might have probable cause on. Well, yeah, I I think that's not exactly what happened, but you know, I think that that one of the areas that it was um, that it was focused on, Mike, is uh, bulk cash smuggling, which is a huge problem. As you know, drugs are sold in the United States, and massive amounts of cash are generated by that. Um, Drug dealers have to get that money out of the country and into accounts that they control. And so bulk cash smuggling was, I think, one of the, one of the areas of interest. And, you know, to your point, it, it is an interesting question, what, you know, whether the 215 comparison is a legitimate one. I mean, you know, I, I think it, there is, there are at least reasonable minds that can differ about whether information, whether third party doctrine means that, that your, uh, information about who you're calling, non-content information about what numbers you're calling, are, uh, uh, is private or not. But the license plate in your car, which you're driving around with displaying to the entire world, I, I would argue is to the extent there's a privacy interest at all in, in that third party information, there's no privacy interest. It's on your, your car plate. precisely right. to identify you. To identify the vehicle, right. But it's not the license plate that's the, 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 the privacy interest is, is, uh, vested in. It's, uh, it's the location. It's the fact that you see the license yeah. plate at a certain location, then you see it at another certain location, so it's tracking your movements. I mean, this is essentially a tracking device. I, I think that's right. But what what I think is interesting about this for the Supreme Court is it's going to make them realize, I hope, what I always thought was the biggest problem with Jones, that they they are entering into a sea of... Um, a, a slippery slopes here, uh, if that, well, that does mix the metaphors, but uh, this is the slipperiest of slopes with all kinds of um, law enforcement activities that people have thought were highly likely to be legal. Uh, now, suddenly, they are going to have to decide, oh, did we mean to uh, throw out that law enforcement technique? And what about this other one? Uh, they'll be chopping and parsing for another generation. And during that generation, the good faith exception is going to get a hell of a workout. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, uh, well, I, unfortunately, I think it's the good faith exception that allows them to make up rules after the fact. Because they can always say, oh, well, that's all right. The people who got caught will still go to jail. It's just that this will be the rule from here on out. All right. Well, let's uh, let's uh, moving on to uh, uh, other topics. Uh, I thought the WikiLeaks Google flap was interesting uh, uh, because it kept developing new uh, dimensions. Uh, uh, Michael, I know you looked at that. Yeah, I think part of it is interesting, and part of it is not. And the, the part that's not so interesting is what WikiLeaks started this whole cl clamoring about, which is they were they expressed outrage that. Uh, the government had been getting the content of WikiLeaks uh, employees' uh, emails, uh, and WikiLeaks wasn't told about it for three and a half years. Uh, and, of course, that's a standard thing. I mean, the government gets gag orders when it issues search warrants for as long as it needs to to protect the integrity of an investigation. So there's nothing new there. And it turns out that, that Google had actually contested the gag order all along. So Google wasn't doing anything uh, you know, wrong there, even in privacy advocates' eyes, I think. But the, the interesting thing is that the email users are all located outside the U.S., so there's a question about whether Google turned over the information uh, from the U.S., that is, whether it was stored in the U.S., or whether that was all stored abroad and Google brought it back to the U.S. to turn over to the Eastern District of Virginia. If the latter is the case, then Google has set it up, set itself up, 
in contrast to Microsoft, which is contesting a warrant, as our listeners know, because we're involved in the case, but um, Microsoft is contesting a warrant for emails that are stored in Ireland. And so if Google has turned over analogous emails that, are, that were stored abroad, it's basically taken the opposite position. And, and I think it hasn't been lost on close observers that Google did not file an amicus brief in the Microsoft case the way many other communications providers did. Well, that That is interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that uh, all of these uh, WikiLeaks supporters are just exactly the kind of people who claim to... Uh, uh, be opposed to the um, the balkanization of the internet uh, uh, because it's inconsistent with the uh, the structure of a single global internet, and who now are really complaining that the internet wasn't sufficiently balkanized from their point of view. Yeah, interesting interesting observation. I think. All right, FTC. It's it is. It is a FTC festival this week. Uh, they uh, they were making news uh, uh, every couple of hours. Uh, um, Internet of Things, uh, uh, Jason, uh, uh, a big staff report on their workshop, uh, and uh, uh, for the first time, an indication of some kind of uh, division within the commission over exactly how far they should go in protecting privacy. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting that uh, Joshua Wright, an FTC commissioner, uh, issued a very strong dissent to the Internet of Things report, uh, criticizing the lack of basis for the recommendations at all, uh, you know, s- suggesting that they were based simply on one workshop. And second, criticizing the FTC for not doing any kind of cost-benefit analysis to support its recommendations, putting businesses in a situation where they might be judged harshly for not implementing recommendations that that are not, in fact, worth the investment. And he even made the observation, uh, this was the most interesting observation, that even though the recommendations are non-binding, given the FTC's track record, there's a risk that uh, companies will perceive a failure to follow them as a basis for regulatory action by the FTC. Because you have no other guidance. Exactly. You're follow them. That's right. Uh, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting, too. Uh, and um, they continue to acquire scalps, 53 now and, and counting. Uh, and if I remember, another couple of 20-year consent decrees. Uh, yeah, and, and in fact, they the, the perhaps the most interesting thing about the blog post last week about the 53rd scalp was the, the statement that they fully expect that number to go up. Uh, and we talked a little bit last week about the fact that in, in their blog they had tried to provide some guidance of – you know, if you want to call it that, to, to companies about what uh, data security practices might be reasonable and appropriate. And, and when you, if you read it, not to be glib, but if you read it, it essentially says that to make sure your data security practices are reasonable and appropriate, you should look to make sure that they are reasonable and appropriate. <laughs> um, and even to the extent that they, they tell you that they factor in or you should factor in, uh, you know, the sensitivity and amount of data you have, the size of your business, the availability and cost of tools uh, to reduce your vulnerabilities – you know, businesses are justifiably concerned that the FTC is going to substitute its own judgment about what's cost effective for the owner, for the business owner's sure. judgment. And, and, and basically, uh, um, do a, uh, a column inch measure that if you end up in the paper and the column inches exceeds a certain, uh, uh, number, they're going to do an investigation. Or, you know, certainly I think it's fair to say, although they would not say it's fair to say that the uh, amount of attention a breach gets dramatically increases the chance that it's going to get their attention. I, I think it, it'd be fun to go back and take a look at the first five or ten of these uh, um, uh, big, long uh, uh, consent decrees to see what problem they were saving us from, because I'm guessing those problems have 
entirely disappeared from our consciousness. Uh, but the uh, consent decrees live on. They do, and for decades. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to suggest that the FTC, the T, may stand for telecommunications. The, the FCC is really going to have to look to uh, its jurisdiction because the FTC is now um, taking on cramming uh, uh, by Sprint, uh, uh, which certainly sounds like a telecommunications service. Well, it's interesting. You know, the FCC is playing catch-up in this space. We, we have often said here that if you have an acronym and you have any potential uh, data security, data privacy uh, jurisdiction, you, you know, you're taking advantage of it. But the FTC is is at least sharing some turf with the FCC. We talked about the Sprint cramming case a couple weeks ago. Now there's a throttling case. Uh, That's it, yes. Because uh, everything has to have a name. So this there's a technique called throttling, which is uh, essentially – uh, providing or promising to provide unlimited data service, but then reducing or cutting off uh, customers' data speed or data access when they go over certain yeah, my provider monthly just, limits. Just, I, I just got a note uh, yesterday saying uh, we're not going to give you any more. We're going to throttle you for the next uh, six or seven days because you've, you've gotten to your two-gig uh, soft limit. But your provider at least told you that they were doing that to you. The FTC complained that TrackPhone, uh, which owns – Straight Talk and Net10, Wireless and Simple Mobile, and Telcel America was not doing that. They were either not telling customers at all or they were bearing it in fine print and in, in disclosures that customers were likely to miss. So uh, they filed a complaint against TrackPhone, and there was a settlement in which TrackPhone's agreed to pay $40 million to customers um, and also to use that money to settle some private class actions that are related to the same the same practice. Wow. Uh, actually, um I do use Straight Talk, so uh, this must have been a very rapid response to having uh, settled the case that they decided to tell me. Maybe they've been doing it all along, and I just never even noticed. Well, maybe you, maybe you should be a member of the class. <laughs> I probably will be. Um, okay, um, uh, the um, uh, we might as well uh, say what the FCC's response has been to this uh, before picking up more of the FTC uh, news. The FCC has decided, well, if you're going to regulate communications, we're going to regulate hotels, um, which you would not have thought was a um, an FCC uh, um, uh, comparative advantage, but uh, they went after Marriott Hotels for cutting off access to other people's Wi-Fi, uh, widely suspected that uh, that was a revenue uh, effort to make sure that you use the hotel the Wi-Fi. Uh, they insisted it was to prevent you from uh, uh, picking up uh, rogue uh, Wi-Fi stations that would exploit you. Um, and uh, now the FCC has sent out an enforcement notice telling all hotels that it's unlawful to engage in uh, Cutting off access to uh, other people's Wi-Fi, which, you know, having having used Wi-Fi in uh, uh, hotels, uh, certainly uh, uh, I have some sympathy for the FCC's position on this. Um, it's not all bad news for people who come under the scrutiny of the FTC. They did say that they were not going to apply COPA to schools and to school testing. Uh, I didn't quite understand what the COPA theory was. These are these are schools uh, uh, or testing services that are gathering information as part of a test and then distributing it. And and the the argument was, well, you're gathering it from people who are uh, 14 years old, so you're uh, bound by all these privacy rules. That's I think that's essentially right. You know, and the FTC basically said that if you're a school, 
or you're a nonprofit testing organization contracted by a school, you're not considered to be a commercial operator. Um, and so the, uh, the COPPA rules, uh, would not apply to you. But that if you have a commercial testing service, uh, that was using the information for its own commercial purposes, then it would be covered by those rules. Hmm. Uh, makes you wonder whether COPA as written might actually not apply to, uh, uh, people who provide testing services, uh, uh, and whether this is just, a um, the FTC saying, oh, that's silly, uh, and as long as it's a non-profit, I guess we'll just give them an exemption. Uh, but, oh, the last guy, uh, the, 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 uh, the FTC really did go after, uh, this fellow, uh, who probably deserved it, uh, who was collecting nude photographs of, uh, women and then, uh, uh, using the, uh, uh, the nude photos, uh, to get them to try to hire him to get them taken down. Yeah, this, this, you know, we, we, uh, we do criticize the FTC from time to time here, so it's nice to be able to give them credit when it's due, and it certainly is here, um, there's a guy named Craig Britton who was the operator of a revenge porn website who uh, in, collected nude photos of people uh, from his users in some cases by duping people into sending the photos. Um, how you could be duped into sending a nude photo to someone you don't know is a question that eludes me, but apparently uh, over a thousand people did it. Uh, and then he would he would post the photos uh, and then uh, even have a bounty system where users were were able to give rewards to other users for getting information on the people in the photos. And when women contacted him to get the photos removed, he either didn't respond or if he did, uh, he referred them to uh, one or more content removal services, including one called Takedown Hammer and Takedown Lawyer, which said they could get the images and the content deleted for a small fee of 200 to $500. So does this mean that Takedown Lawyer as a domain is now available? It may be available. Yeah, we, should, um, we, should, we should be looking at Because this. it was owned by him, so <laughs> exactly. it, it may be available. So. He would refer them to service he owned uh, and and agree to take the images down that he had posted for a small fee. Oh, jeez. Uh, so uh, here's my question. Uh, surely there's some wire fraud involved there. Uh, um, uh, do you think that there's a decent chance that there's a criminal case in the works too? You know, it's, it's certainly the fact that the FTC has settled with him and he's agreed to delete the images and, and, uh, and agreed not to collect images of that type and delete the ones he has collected – doesn't insulate him from criminal prosecution. I think wire fraud might be the one of several problems he could have, um, and it wouldn't surprise me if there was a criminal case in the works. All right, last last story uh, is uh, China has um, uh, reacted to the Snowden uh, um, matter uh, by saying, "Oh, you're worried about backdoors. Uh, why don't we mandate them?" Uh, and uh, they've been saying that uh, telecommunications providers um, have to provide a, I think they called it a port, not a backdoor, uh, to allow access to uh, to telecommunications. And at the same time, they've been telling banks, um, we want you to stop using foreign uh, um, equipment to secure your uh, uh, your bank records. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, um, is that? Uh, all of a piece in terms of uh, uh, policy consistency, or are they being inconsistent? No, I think they're being very consistent, um, and you got to give them credit. Uh, you know, they're really just following the U.S. lead by uh, passing their own version of CALEA 20 years after the U.S. Uh, passed its law requiring uh, communications companies to build in 
the means for lawful access by government agencies. So here they've said that communications companies have to build in technical ports, uh, which uh, I think is not defined, but it appears to mean ports that would provide access to the network for the authorities. Um, and they're also supposed to inform the authorities of their encryption schemes. That's a little vague, but it, it seems to mean that they have to tell the authorities what encryption they are using. And uh, I would imagine when that's implemented, people will have to turn over their keys too, but I think that remains to be seen. Uh, and also, this was last November, and in September, the government also issued an opinion saying that banks have to increase the use of, quote, secure and controllable information technologies, close quote, in their operations, uh, ostensibly to increase security, uh, but there are concerns that when the government defines that term uh, more, def uh, more clearly, it's going to again mean uh, that the government somehow is going to gain access to banking transactions. So we'll have to see how these are implemented, but they are causing great concerns among Western companies uh, that do business in China. So I, the the principle is we're against other people's backdoors uh, because they get in the way of our backdoors. Yeah, uh, but you know this is really it's it's of a kind with restrictions that China has in place already. I mean, obviously they they want to keep tabs on communications within China, and if they're having difficulty doing that, uh, then they're going to take steps to. Address it. I mean, it's they have their own version of the going dark problem. They just have an easier time addressing that problem than U.S. Uh, law enforcement authorities do. I, that that makes sense that they uh, are doing this. I think probably what's worrying people most is that uh, increasingly they're driving standards for technology, and there used to be an implicit exception for Western businesses who needed security. And that implicit exception is increasingly under pressure as the Chinese decide that they've got the clout to force the Westerners to uh, uh, comply with their uh, wiretap capabilities. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, the exception, as I understand it, uh, the implicit exception is for internal use by a by a non-Chinese company, and they they would let you use your own encryption. Um, with fewer restrictions than if you were a Chinese uh, company, but I think you're right. That that now is in serious jeopardy. There's also, I think, a movement by China towards data localization requirements so that companies that collect information about Chinese, personal information about Chinese citizens have to keep it in China, uh, at least unless they get the explicit consent of the data subject to move it outside of China. Well, that's to So that's going to cause... The, the purpose of that is to ensure that the Chinese nationals get the full benefit of all the civil liberties protections under Chinese law. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and there's just a little uh, bonus that it will aid the Chinese in, uh, again, keeping tabs of political dissidents and the like. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's a great uh, roundup. Uh, and as I said, our guest commentator for the uh, week is Becky Richards, who's NSA's uh, Civil Liberties and Privacy Director. Uh, welcome, Becky. Thank you. And I apologize for blaming the uh, uh, Seattle Seahawks uh, uh, performance on NSA's interception policies. Uh, uh, it, it, that may be the first uh, time somebody has issued that, uh, uh, has blamed you for that, but it's really the only thing they haven't blamed you for in the last year or two. Um, so I, let me just start out by asking about 
your office. I remember when um, NSA created the job of public affairs officer, and everybody thought that was hilarious because, you know, NSA never responded to press inquiries. Uh, so it was either a non-existent job or the easiest job on the planet. Uh, um, the reaction to the creation of a privacy and civil liberties office at NSA is similar, although I think people believe that it's either a fraud or you're going to be the busiest woman on the planet. Uh, uh, how did the office come about and why did you take the job? I think it's, uh, I've described it as probably one of the craziest jobs around. And, um, but it's really interesting. So the president announced it in August of 2013. And after a fair bit of cajoling, decided that um, I would actually apply and see what happened and went through a whole bunch of uh, interviews and snow days um, with three more interviews and um, ended up with the job. And as a, when I started out the interview process, I was like, oh, I don't know if I really want to do this, but this is a really important job. If what they're saying is true on the outside, you know, we need to, we, there needs to be some work. If it's not true, there needs to be some work. We, we need to do this. And so, um. So you knew nothing about that. You had no clearances. You, you were not at all familiar with what uh, life was like inside the fence. Well, no, I was at Homeland Security. Ah, okay. So you knew something. So I knew something and I had clearances and I had a little bit of here and there, but not, um, not the full, uh, full information, shall right. we say. Um, but one of your, uh, David Hoffman, uh, really strongly suggested I apply and, and David's been a guest on the I, uh, podcast. Yes. And so, um, took the job actually a year ago today was when I started. Wow. And it has been a fantastic and, as I said, crazy job for the last year. Okay. So I have my own views because I have a very similar experience to you 20-some years ago uh, going in knowing less than you knew. Uh, uh, but tell me what's unusual about it uh, from your point of view, uh, including different – how is it different from DHS? So – Perhaps the most unusual is that when you walk in the building, there's a sign that says a core value is privacy. Mm-hmm. And certainly everybody, when I told them I had the job, said my father-in-law, being the prime one, said it was an oxymoron. <laughs> and why was... Father, fathers-in-law, that's what they're for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So um, he, he finds it absolutely entertaining that I have this job and um, varying degrees of um, disbelief. But I also use that as a bit of my target audience testing to see whether the messages are coming through and whether what I'm saying makes sense. Is he is he like a, a Drudge Report reader? He is a Drudge Report reader. He is a, a former Rhode Island um, political uh, – I think he was a House and Senate and, apply, and ran for attorney general and is very involved in the Republican – of Rhode Island. So he's used to being a small and abused minority. Yes. Uh, okay, so uh, I, I agree that uh, they, there's a lot of talk about privacy. I remember vividly uh, when uh, uh, we were showing the Attorney General around uh, at the start of the Clinton administration, uh, I, and the director was taking her through a watch center, and there were all these guys in uniform private sergeants listening to uh, uh, communications, uh, and he had one of them stand up. He said, uh, so what do you do if you get an American's phone call? Uh, 
And the guy knew every one of the rules, uh, and it impressed the attorney general at the time. Uh, um, and I said to him, you know, usually you don't ask a question until you know what the answer is going to be. He said, I had absolute confidence that this guy would know the answer because so much training is devoted to making sure that everybody here has those rules firmly in mind. That's absolutely true. And one of the most fascinating aspects of this is um, really there is a culture of privacy at NSA. I, I realize there's lots of people who don't think that that's possible or the case. And the culture at NSA is different than it is at DHS. And um, there's a real, you know, they talk about the culture of compliance and it's there. You know, people stand up and say, I made a mistake in a way that really, I think, protects privacy and needs to be nurtured and continued to look forward as we move forward within NSA. Now, there are places that I think we can continue to improve. One of those is we haven't really had to speak for 60-some-odd years here. And there are things that we should be talking about, and there are um, areas where we need to be more transparent. But this transparency for transparency's sake I don't think actually helps anybody. I think what we need to be doing is providing the context, the understanding for what it is that the agency is doing, how they're doing it, and how they're protecting privacy and civil liberties. Yeah, you know, I I have to say that uh, my faith in transparency is shaken by these DEA studies. They they hid this, not even classified. It was like law enforcement sensitive. They kept it uh, hidden for 25 years. It was a mass uh, uh, collection of data in support of a legal regime that is deeply controversial, right? Uh, uh, Colorado's uh, uh, opted out of the, the regime. Uh, and the reaction, unlike the reaction to NSA, has been, oh, yeah, cops do that. It's definitely, um, I think it's important for folks to be both inside an agency and outside an agency. And what I would offer is that one of the benefits of being inside the agency is you can see everything that's going on and then figure out how to be appropriately transparent and identify. I I like to think at times that I'm a bit of a canary in the coal mine. This is what we're doing, but gee, there are some places where we probably need to be a little bit more transparent and have a little bit more conversation with what what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. And when you say transparent, that means talking to the press, I guess. I think that there's transparency at a couple of different levels. And so in my head, I've been sort of thinking about, you know, at sort of a public level, there's a base level of um, transparency about, for example, what are our safeguards? How are we ensuring we're not collecting on U.S. persons? Or how are we, um, you know, really demonstrating that we're being compliant with the rules we've been provided? And that's a certain level of transparency. But then it's important to be transparent with our partners. It's important to be transparent with our overseers. You know, there's a lot of conversation about how complex what it is the agency does. But I think it's incumbent upon the agency to be able to explain that in a way that folks on both sides of the table understand what's going on and what are the implications of, for example, I want to change this or I want to do this new um, in a way that, that's really important. And so so they need to have that that type of a conversation. And at the highest level, obviously, you want to have transparency all the way down. You want to make sure you know everything from uh, you want the director to know everything that's going on and has an, an understanding of how that works within the context of the authorities. It's funny. You know, I, I don't think that the CIA director would say, I need to know everything that's going on in the collection of intelligence uh, at CIA. But there's a much, you know, they expect you to go out and develop 
um, sources. And yes, they, you know, if they get uneasy, they might ask questions, but they don't actually expect to, to monitor their agents in the field in the same way that NSA monitors its employees. I think it's a difference in terms of the type of technology, the type of collection. SIGINT, you know, is, is a very different beast than humans. I mean, you know that from mm-hmm. your days there. And, and I think that that's some of that expectation. I, I think that, you know, if something goes slightly wrong with, um, at NSA, that can have pretty big ramifications. That may be a little bit less when you're in a human context. I have less knowledge about humans, so I'm not going to speak to that, but I will say that that's one of the reasons I think when we think about SIGINT, it's important to keep that in mind. So my theory is, is slightly different. I think um, uh, NSA is, a, is an organization that has become successful in gathering intelligence by bringing to bear the enormous advantages of concentrated, large organizational focus. Uh, um, and... Um, it is, it's, it's comparative advantage is that it's an enormous organization and probably, if I had to guess, 85% of the employees at NSA live within 50 miles of, uh, the fort. I, it, which is completely different from, um, the CIA where the people who are actually doing the work are thousands of miles away and have to make decisions that they can't check with their boss. Whereas at, at NSA, everything can go up the chain and back down again. Uh, and that makes it a much more uh, directed organization and a place that, that where this inculcation of uh, responsibility to turn yourself in and an expectation that you're being uh, monitored when you're gathering this um, is realistic. That's a fine theory. Yeah, that's well. That that that's it. That's my theory. Yeah. Uh, I, how did you find the culture? Put aside the privacy. Uh, what else struck you about the culture of the uh, the institution? You know, it's an amazingly thoughtful group of people. The you know everybody gives the joke about the NSAers. You can tell a extroverted NSAer they look at your shoes instead of his <laughs> own shoes. Um, it's true. <laughs> it's it's very true. Um, but it's also folks take a, a moment and they think about hard problems. And so as we have a conversation about what does it mean to protect civil liberties and privacy within NSA in an intelligence community, um, you know, folks come forward, they, they we have conversations and then go back and a week or two later say, hey, you know, a couple of weeks ago we had this conversation about how to protect this particular or do this safeguard. I was thinking you might want to think about it this way. And so it's a very thoughtful agency in a way that um, I'm not sure I would have that same description of some of my other agencies I've worked at. Yeah, I, it's, an, it's an engineering approach is my theory, is that uh, uh, they're engineers, they're used to taking hard problems and finding engineering solutions. Yes. I, and uh, so now they've got a set of rules. The president has announced some rules, uh, some new rules uh, in the PDD uh, um, including protection of foreigners' privacy up to a point uh, and the civil liberties of foreigners. How is the implementation of that actually going? So we will be announcing here in any moment all of our procedures and information, um, and we will be, NSA along with the other folks, will be um, as directed in the PPD-28 issuing procedures showing how we are providing comparable protections to U.S. persons and non-U.S. persons given national security considerations. So what's the what's the timing of that? Uh, when when will the, the 
actual procedures uh, and the uh, the mechanisms for for pri- providing those protections be available? Any day now. Any day, okay. <laughs> and you should feel free to, you know, contact the folks at the White House I, to have them come talk with you. Uh, they have several privacy folks they announced after PPD 28. Yes, I, 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 I understand the tensions in the interagency process and I can hear them in your voice. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you know, that, that's what the White House staff is there for to make sure everything is a, a month late. Um, and so, um, but you must have had to think about how are we actually going to turn some of these general policies into uh, code and um, rules. Um, so uh, let me just you know pick one at random. Uh, uh, the intelligence community is not supposed to disadvantage people based on their sexual preference or their ethnicity or religious belief. Uh, what does that mean for targeting people if you think that, um, say, uh, there's uh, reason to believe that there are uh, uh, Islamic extremists who are, are planning an attack and you want to uh, uh, target them? Um, obviously, they are. They do have a particular religion. Uh, so does that mean you can't target them or that you can say, well, I'm not really targeting them for their religion or I'm not really disadvantaging them because of their religion? How does that work? This is continuing to be a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And so the way that we've started approaching this, um, at least within my office, is we actually are starting to build a civil liberties and privacy assessment process in order to have a, a more, um, a better understanding of what is the type of data we have in the agency and how are we using it. One of the other, um, aspects of PPD 28 has to do with we can only use bulk data for certain uh, enumerated uses. Right. And so we have started to look at it and, it, and go back to your engineering um, methodology at the agency. We've started to think about um, how can you actually engineer privacy and civil liberties protections into the data? And is this similar to what the National Academy of Sciences was trying to look at? The National Academy was looking at the question whether they could uh, substitute for bulk collection uh, software uh, tools that would allow you to do more focused searches. I think it's certainly a variation on it, but we're sort of looking at it from a um, – in the land of big data mm-hmm. – if I think about how we normally do our privacy analysis, it tends to be very uh, sort of a bit of an art form. Most of us are some form of liberal arts. We look at a problem. We identify it. We have lots of conversations. I know we had these when we were at DHS, yes, working and- on various programs, be it real ID or otherwise. And then you have sort of an art form that t- transpires as part of that. Well, I think whether you're at NSA or you're anywhere where you have lots of data coming together for lots of purposes, that is not a sustainable method to identifying some of your privacy risks. And so what we're looking at is, can you look at the data and identify the type of data? And and this is going to be controversial, but I would posit that generally your home address is probably less privacy sensitive than your health information. And Mm -hmm. we have laws that match that. So if you can start to rank some of those that way, and then you can look at different types of uses, you could create a math-based process that will identify the areas you need to spend more policy time on. Huh. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm, 
I think you're going to have trouble with that because uh, uh, health data, everybody will say health data is really important, but 90% of the time it's not important at all. Uh, and sometimes it's just a church bulletin notice that uh, we're sending flowers to uh, one of our parishioners who broke her leg. That's health data. Suddenly it's really sensitive, but you know, uh, uh, no one really thinks it's sensitive because it's the sort of thing that is widely available in church bulletins. I don't disagree, but I think that there needs to be a, um, we need to begin working out just because this is difficult or some might offer impossible. I think there's got to be a better way than looking at a set of data and going, oh, these are how I'm going to mitigate the privacy and civil liberties risks. And I know you've tended to be more on the use side. Let's control, you know, take all the data in. Let's just worry about how we're going to use it. Yeah. Um, I think it needs to be, I, I think we have to look at it from both perspectives. And so I think that there are certain types of data, say data that's been, you know, an inference data, you know, take my FICO score, which is not really, it's information that's been composited together. And as it goes along, you know, yesterday on the Super Bowl, they had all these um, advertisements. giving away your FICO scores. Yes. <laughs> well, no, no, I was thinking of the ones where they were saying it's, you know, we're giving you your rates based on not who you are, but sort of who you think you might be. Right, that's right, who you sort of are. Who you sort of are. Well, I, I think that's an, um, you know, those ty- that type of information where it's sort of inferred, I would offer is actually probably more privacy risky than um, information specifically about me. Well, there's a greater risk of people making uh, um, judgments that uh, uh, cause you damage than that are wrong, right? Right, right. And so if you're looking then at the end of the, if you look sort of all the way through, what what I'm concerned about at, at a very broad context is I don't want to do bad things to good people. Well, if I don't want to do that, it means that you want to make sure you have accurate data so so that you're targeting the right person, you're collecting the data in a way that makes it accurate. So this is this is standard FIPS, right? Uh, uh, fair information practices, the data ought to be accurate. Yes, and there's a fair bit of, of controversy about the FIPS and how they do or don't um, apply in an intelligence agency or otherwise writ large, but... But if, if anything from the FIPS ought to be um, useful for an intelligence agency is, is, is that it ought to be accurate, right? It ought to be accurate. You ought to have security. You definitely need to be having some auditing. Um, I think the places where there's a worthy conversation is some of the ones around redress. So yeah, I guess. I'm just <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to offer that. I think NSA should be taking redress, um, re- you know, redress requests. I'm not sure that that's the place we want to be. Um, but I do think that we need to think about who is the right person. Who is the right organization? You know, is that a role that, um, you know, we have DHS trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sure, there's, there's lots of intelligence data that lands you eventually on some of those. But, but do we have a meaningful form of redress in the intelligence community? Um, and, you know, the Brits have their commissioner um, who, who can take that. And That's right. You can complain, and, and, and you may never know whether they fixed it. Right. Uh, uh, the Brits just take your complaint and say, we've looked at it and decided that uh, uh, you haven't been mistreated. Uh, and that's right. That's the extent of it. Uh, um, but I think uh, you, can, you can see um, how redress might work. I mean, DHS, I, I always thought our redress answer was... Yeah, we're using this information to decide whether to stop you and interview you. The interview is the redress. Uh, and uh, you'll tell us, uh, no, I, I I didn't do that. Uh, and uh, here's my explanation for why uh, I was traveling in this way. And we'll enter that, too. And you may never be stopped again. Or if you're stopped again, you'll just remind them that you uh, um, you, you 
have this uh, activity and gradually your redress will build up in the file. My sense would be that in practice that folks who tend to get those interviews over and over and over um, don't feel they're getting redress. Don't feel that that's really redress. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that, that, uh, in theory, um, I think there's a theory versus practice there aspect that, that in theory that should be, you know, people should feel that they've had their redress by having had all those questions asked. I, I'm just not sure that that, you know, if you're on the receiving end of that process, that that's how it feels. So what about the, uh, the uh, National Academy study? Was there something in there that is useful to your office? So they, they basically, if I remember right, said, Look, if you want to work, look back in history. The only way to look back uh, in time is to do bulk collection uh, in history or over history, uh, and then you'll have an ability to recreate events from the past. Otherwise, you just can't do it. So we're looking at it, and we're looking at the conversations around bulk to understand um, all of those in a more classified fashion as to how we might a- approach it. What I would say is um, a- any of those studies are helpful because they're another data point to think about some of the- these um, more difficult questions. And I think you see it even when you're having the conversation about transparency. We're in a representative democracy, and um, is it appropriate to have a you know have everybody have access to everything? No. Who do you decide should have access to that information? Who do you have that's going to sort of create that trust and confidence? And I think those are the places where we're. Yeah, so I think I I, I think you're right. Uh, we've spent since the 70s at least assuming that if we obeyed the law, we could do whatever we whatever was left, we could just do it, and we could be creative and enthusiastic and aggressive uh, and use little smiley faces when we succeeded. Uh, uh, and and that turned out to be really devastating for the institution because, as far as I can tell, there was very little illegality, if any, established, uh, except for a few things that the institution itself had uh, had punished. Uh, um, so uh, it turned out that staying on the right side of the law didn't actually protect the agency from disaster. So the question is, what lesson do you learn uh, now that you know that uh, being legal is necessary but not sufficient. So I think we, I think an important lesson learned, and Clapper said this last year, and I think from 215 is an important one that, that we're really um, taking to heart, which is, you know, this no secret legal interpretations. And, you know, if the, if the, the law on its face does not, um, you have to go through too many contorted, you know, legal ones. I mean, what is legal? Um, I think that's, that's where we really need to not have perhaps cute legal interpretations. Um, and so I would say that's sort of a first learning so lesson. So isn't the problem there that, uh, you, you say, okay, I'm not going to have cute or, or aggressive legal interpretations, but if you want to explain to people what your, new interpretation is, uh, you kind of have to put it in a context of facts, and the context of facts gives away a lot about your, how your program actually works. I don't disagree. I think this is a work in progress. Right. I, I also think, you know, we've had 40 years in which we have not had, you know, there's no demonstrations from all of these different r- reviews that there's been really any illegality. Um, 
but are we prepared for that for the next 40 years? You know, is, is, is the institutions and what we're doing and how we're doing it sustainable, both from a, a, a national security perspective and from a protection of privacy and civil liberties? You know, we, we had sort of this grand bargain in 78 and, and it worked, but the technology has changed. The threat has changed. And, um, so are we, we prepared for, for the next 40 years or are we sort of going down that? And I think those are the sort of bigger questions that, that, you know, folks like you should be thinking about. I, 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 there's no doubt that there are greater risks ahead. Uh, um, the, uh, um, the division of the parties has created uh, a real um, lack of trust. Uh, you know, uh, I may be the only Republican I know who will say nice things about the Obama administration's National Security Agency. Uh, and uh, uh, as soon as the parties change, all of the accusations will flip and Republicans will uh, be defending the agency and Democrats will be uh, rejoining the ACLU. Um, uh, so... I, the only real protection then, uh, it seems to me, is that both parties knew about what was going on. That is to say, the disclosure to the ranking member and the chairman of the intelligence committees, uh, uh, and to the, uh, uh, the leadership of the House and Senate. Uh, but that is, that is almost explicitly a political protection, which, um, is awkward in the context of intelligence gathering, it seems to me, to say, you know, we, we have a partisan protection against abuse of the party. I think that's, a, I, I think we're, we're gonna have to spend some time re, rethinking how these, how this works. Yeah, you know, there's, the, it's always interesting when we have these conversations around privacy because you tend to then have sort of the matching of the right, you know, the right wing and the left wing coming together where you have, you know, right. the, the NRA working together with the ACLU on how we're protecting privacy. And I, I think you see that playing out similarly in this whole conversation um, about, you know, what are the right protections and, and how do we want it? At the end of the day, the government is meant to be by the people, for the people, of the people, you know, and, and, and if the people are not behind, uh, what, you know, your, their intelligence agencies are doing, the intelligence agencies need to think about how they better explain the value of what it is they bring to the country and whether that's the, those are the right things. I, I, I suspect that that is, it's a hard lesson to articulate and, and hard actually, I think, for uh, uh, NSA to learn, but one that CIA has learned. The CIA has uh, gone through disastrous scandals uh, and accusations of being, you know, anti-democratic and evil, uh, uh, probably one every decade, uh, while NSA was quietly sitting there uh, saying, we're legal and uh, uh, what's the problem? Uh, now that they recognize that this, they're going to be put through the blender uh, uh, just on the grounds that the press angle on what they were doing has turned out to be wrong, they're going to have to work much harder on, frankly, the press angle and on demonstrating the value of what they're doing, which is to say talking about their successes, which is partly what DEA does, right? Uh, people who don't like drugs or who have family members that were lost to drugs, uh, uh, those folks 
believe in DEA's mission in a way that that very few people believe in NSA's mission except in the abstract. Well, some of this also comes down what we don't actually teach in civics lesson what an intelligence agency does. So, um, you know, you, you folks sort of are coming at this and, and frequently the questions I get, they, they're asking law enforcement, you know, how are, how is this related to, you know, being arrested or what's your law enforcement? And so we've been sort of, uh, thinking about how do you, what, what, what is Smokey the Bear for the intelligence community? Um, you know, how, how do you explain what it is you're, you're doing? And, and the, those are the places that, you know, it, it's, we've got a, it's a, it's going to be a long, slow learning process. You also have a agency of engineers who, you know, talking is not necessarily their, their favorite activity. And so, you know, learning how to, how to speak in a way that folks understand. Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's not just that. They aren't very good at dealing with, um, unresolved conflict. They always want to solve the problem, uh, and sometimes the only way they could solve the problem is to abolish the uh, uh, the agency, tear down the building, and sow the ground with salt, because uh, that's what their opponents want. Uh, uh, and so their, eff- their 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 constant effort to find an engineering solution to that uh, conflict is never going to uh, result in an effective uh, uh, resolution. Uh, so, uh, last question uh, of substance, at least. Uh, um, Information sharing. There's some. There are many people who believe that if we're going to have any hope for bipartisan legislation uh, in the next six months, it's going to be on information sharing, um, or maybe on the question of uh, what to do about 215, because something has to be done. Um, what uh, a role do you expect to come out of uh, uh, that uh, effort for NSA? in the information sharing. Obviously, in 2.15, you're either going to get it or you're not. I think I want to look into that ball. It's a little fuzzy. I think there are many different ways that that can come out along with 2.15. And um, so, so, uh, you know, my my fortune-telling skills are are a little lacking at this point. So how much testifying have you done? I have not done any. Is that a choice, uh, or has nobody called you? Uh, nobody's called. So we've gone down, and um, when I first started, we sort of went around and said what the office was was doing and how we were doing it. And um, uh, mostly, I've been spending, you know, on and off different time with the advocacy community, hearing some of their uh, questions, and and sometimes figuring out how to translate their questions into questions that the agency can't possibly answer. Um, you know, it, it, at times how the agency functions. One of the more interesting things about the agency has been we are regulated by 12, you know, 12333 by FISA. And those questions um, really circle around where are you physically doing the collection? Mm-hmm. How are you doing the collection? And is it a U.S. person? Not usually. But if we think about how we regulate privacy outside of NSA, mm-hmm. it tends to be what data do you have? And how are you using it? Right. And that's so, so sort of when you think about, yeah, we've been legal and it's been necessary. Um, you know, it, it's been ne- it's been necessary, but not sufficient. I, you know, some of that conversation is very difficult because it's this asymmetric conversation. Well, I'm only collecting data on non-U.S. persons outside the U.S. What's the issue here, folks? Right. I, I went I went to the unregulated 
space. And that's why, and I went there for a good reason. That's, that's what I'm best at is dealing with, uh, with this data without worrying too much about, uh, a set of rules for it. But that's not, you know, so, so it's a conversation that's difficult to have because you have the, you, you will have different folks coming in. So well, what data do you have? I have data. Right. And, and so some of what we're, we're working on is, is building a, a more nuanced conversation around the, this to, to be able to have that conversation because there are types of data and that will help you discuss also what's the value of what I'm doing. But just saying I have data for a foreign intelligence purpose is, is at this point needs a little bit oh, more. Yeah, you can surely say more than that. I mean, for God's sake, it's, it's perfectly obvious. We do intercepts. We collect data. We intercept lots of data we, th- that we cannot pre-select in any substantial way because, you know, it's it, it's hard to to put in fine-tuned selectors to decide, you know, I only want this little piece of, of the data. Uh, and besides, we're looking for people who are trying to hide. So if we already knew where they were, they wouldn't be the people we're most worried about. Uh, uh, so we get big gobs of data, and then we go through it looking for stuff that might be of foreign intelligence purpose, uh, value uh, using a variety of, you know, whatever the most sophisticated tools are for finding it. And if we don't find it after a while, we dump it because we don't have room to keep it. I mean, isn't that... A- so, so that's sort of that high-level cartoon. Yes, that, that's the conversation we've been having. I'll, I'll offer, I don't think folks find that particularly satisfying. I think that, that you know... Um, oh, I, I, it sounds a lot like Google. <laughs> we we collect all this data because it's bound to be useful sometimes. Yes, and, and sometimes we get that. You know, why? Why? What's the problem here? The, you know, outside NSA, outside the government, look at all the things that the private sector does, and and I think that's why there's been sort of this, in a way that perhaps with some of the other intelligence agency activities, um, thinking CIA, this feels much more personal. Um, or at least it can be characterized as that. And it can be characterized at it. And, and, you know, as I sort of go about having, you know, dinner with my, whether my in-laws or my family saying, what is it you're doing? And I don't think I trust what you're doing. And, and, and how are you doing it? It just, you know, it, it resonates in a way that, you know, some of the other, you know, what you're doing to foreigners and foreign soil doesn't feel quite as personal. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Uh, uh, okay, so um, in closing, we always give our guests an opportunity to pitch things that they are doing in the future. You got any reports coming out, speeches you're going to give, uh, appearances? Uh, uh, I hesitate to give people time to to, to let the fruit uh, ri- get overripe, but uh, any any speeches you want to tell us about? Uh, so I'm going to be testifying for the NIST uh, Information Security and Privacy Advisory Board in a couple weeks, and then um, International Association of Privacy Professionals, and doing a lot more outreach on this privacy uh, research idea of, of looking at the data and looking at the uses that I love. Everybody tells me I'm crazy, and it's not going to work. So I figure intractable solutions are a great place to start with a bunch of fabulously technologically engineering folks. Yeah, yeah. No, I... I, I, I there's if there's somebody who can come up with a uh, a way of engineering privacy more effectively it's likely to be somebody that you work with uh, so uh Becky thank you so much for uh, for coming in it was a pleasure uh, I, I you know what one of the things that's clear NSA needs is people who can go out and talk about the mission uh in ways that uh, uh don't disclose uh, uh sensitive information but give people a sense that uh 
uh, these are ordinary human beings and ordinary Americans who are doing a job uh, that they believe in and trying at the same time to live up to American values. And you have lived up to that uh, uh, mission already. Yeah. Uh, uh, Thank you uh, uh, for participating. Uh, as a reminder for the uh, uh, audience, um, Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. You can send questions, suggestions, abuse uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, and you can leave messages that, uh, if they're entertaining enough, we will play on the air at 202-862-5785. Uh, uh, this has been Episode 52 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Coming soon, we're going to have Julie Brill in the famous uh, Vermont interview. And uh, uh, now that I've got uh, um, a, a recorder I have some faith in, uh, I'm actually going to take it to Paris next week uh, and see if I can't interview some Europeans on some of the cyber espionage issues that I'm in a conference about. Uh, uh, and um, we're also going to have uh, Nula O'Connor, president and CEO of CDT, uh, uh, the Center for Democracy and T Technology. Um, that should be fraught. Uh, and we hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.